0: You're listening to Country Music Success Stories featuring Music City mentor, J.C. Don Valeris. Now, here's your host, Candy Terry.
1: Music Row is just a road in Nashville, but it is paved with the hopes and the dreams of just about every man or woman who ever walked it, wishing that they could someday make it in Music City. Back in the day, there weren't a lot of hotels in Nashville, so an elite residence was built on Music Row called The Spence, complete with the coolest guitar-shaped pool you've ever seen. This is where John Schneider lives whenever he comes to Nashville, and it's where this interview took place. As JC and I stepped into the gold-trimmed, mirrored elevator and pressed the number for Beau Duke's floor, I mean, John Schneider's floor, I couldn't help but wonder if he was still as hot as the beau I remembered from the Dukes of Hazzard. And he is with a number one TV show that lasted for seven seasons. John Schneider added 11 top 10 songs to his repertoire, including four number ones and nine studio albums. He's got roles on Smallville, The Haves and the Have Nots. And do you remember him on Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman? And then there's his career as an independent filmmaker. All these artistic endeavors point to one defining truth about John Schneider. He believes in taking chances, and he has never doubted his talent or his destiny.
0: I always expect great things and I ask people to do the same. It's a mindset. If you expect bad things to happen, they will. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. Therefore, if you expect great things to happen, they will. As
1: JC and I settled into a living room whose walls are lined with album covers and gold records and pictures of John with A-listers, I pressed record. And I asked John for the 411 on this place they call the Spence.
0: This building was built in 1974 to entice Elvis to come live here while he was recording at Studio B, which is about 100 yards away. So the Spence family built the Spence Manor as a hotel, and from 74 until 77, Elvis and the gang, the TCB gang, had the sixth floor here.
1: You know, it's interesting because no matter where we go and no matter who we're talking to, so many of the stories in Nashville come back to a story about Elvis. It's really incredible.
0: This is a very famous place. It's where everybody stayed when they came to record. The Rolling Stones would stay here. Anybody who came to record in Nashville.
1: Give us an update on what you're up to right now, because this is pretty exciting. I'm looking at you doing some editing on giant screens.
0: That is Poker Run. That is the sequel to Stand On It.
1: Do you love making movies?
0: Love making movies. What do you love love most? Yeah. Watching people laugh when they watch a movie or get tense. I like to watch people watch the movies we make. To me, it's the most exciting part is seeing whether or not the creation of that reality works for an audience.
1: You know, there are so many parts and pieces to your career, and you've been doing this for so long, but in preparing myself for this interview, I was just overwhelmed by all the different talents that you have. And that's what I'm hoping that we can start talking about today. So let's call go. call them interests. <laughs> well, they've, they've been pretty good for you in your career. <laughs> yeah, they have. Let's go back to the story about your audition at 18 for the Dukes of Hazard. This is a fun story.
0: It is a fun story. I was living in Atlanta. My mother worked for IBM, so she was transferred from New York. I'm from New York, but she was transferred when I was 14. So 1974, moved to Atlanta, but I had already been doing theater from the time I was eight and magic and juggling and any any number of things. But theater people do all that. It's unusual to find a theater person that can't hang a light, build a set, and build a crepe hair beard on someone's face with spirit gum. So you have to be able to do all that stuff or you're not in theater. In 78, I was 18. I had already BS'd my way onto the set of Smoking the Bandit at 16 and gotten in the movie. I skipped school. I went and found someone with a radio, tapped him on the shoulder and said, hey, man, I'm sorry I'm late, but traffic on the interstate's a bear. Where's hair and makeup? And he showed me where hair and makeup was, got me a breakfast sandwich, and I spent the day there with Jackie Gleason. Oh, my God. Yeah.
1: I did not know this part of the story. Yeah, pretty Keep cool. on going.
0: So I'm only in the very end. I'm not, not credited, didn't have a line, didn't get a paycheck, didn't get anything, but I got in and I was not kicked out. And years later, when... The Bert Reynolds and Hal Needham became very good friends of mine. Both of them, in separate conversations, said, you're that guy. You're that kid. Nobody could figure out who in the hell you were. <laughs> and Bert had heard the story about auditioning for Dukes, 1978. They were looking for 24-year-olds with no experience from rural Georgia. I was 18 from Westchester County, New York, with 10 years of theater under my belt and working in a cabaret show called uh, the Manhattan Yellow Pages in the building where the audition was, the Omni International Hotel. So I was working in that building with my picture up on the marquee. I told them I was 24 from Snailville, Georgia.
1: Is there such a place as Snailville, Georgia? Uh, or did is, you I, make I that up wrong. as well? It's
0: actually Snellville. Okay. <laughs> I call it Snailville accidentally, uh, but I, I got a... It worked. A, it worked. It worked. And I brought in a beer. I brought in a six-pack of beer, Pat's Blue Ribbon.
1: I also uh, read that it. you drove some dilapidated truck or something. I borrowed
0: some? a truck because I was driving a TR6. I had a Triumph TR6.
1: Didn't and fit the mold.
0: I just wanted to feel right. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm, I was 18 and only four years out of New York. But rural New York.
1: Well, West Westchester County. Westchester is, you know, is
0: the place, you know, when things when go bad and... In all the cop shows, they say, well, his, his family from was Westchester. from Westchester. Well, that's where I'm from. Well,
1: I grew up in Connecticut in Fairfield County, oh, so I know all about Fairfield. Westchester and I know all about, you know, Sleepy Hollow and Nurse Rye Starnes and Mo- yeah, And Sing
0: yep. Sing, one of our <laughs> glorious parts. Of, I think so, Sing Sing is still in Westchester County.
1: You get the part, but I want to just back up and say, have you always been brave like that?
0: Yeah, Well, I've always been... um, That takes
1: guts, what you just described.
0: I've expected great things. I always expect great things, and I ask people to do the same. It's a mindset. If you expect bad things to happen, they will. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. Therefore, if you expect great things to happen, they will. If you expect to see division and prejudice, that's all you'll see. If you expect to see unity and brotherly love, that's all you'll see. So that's all I see.
1: When you were about eight years old, I read a an article about how you wanted to be like Houdini or something. And you threw yourself a into a swimming in, pool, we pool or something. Tell point. me that story.
0: Part of the magician's journey is escape acts. So I had some friends of mine tie me up with clothesline and some chain from the hardware store and a padlock, I think it was. And, and when my mom got home from work, friends friend said, hey... John wants you to come see him at the pool. So mom comes to the pool, and this was probably 1975, maybe 74. I said, "Hey, mom, watch!" And then I had a friend push me into the deep end of the pool, all all, all chained. The and lifeguard in me that. is
1: losing her mind right now. Continue, well,
0: but so I obviously I made it because here I am. And <laughs> did uh, somebody
1: have to go in there and get you out, no, or did you no, were you but, able you know, to part untangle the, part of yourself?
0: Ship is making it appear so.
1: Yeah, but you've got to hold your breath for an awfully long time. So. Yeah,
0: but I'm a singer, so well, there it, wasn't, you go. it wasn't hard. <laughs> and, you know, you act like you can't get out, and my mother... Uh,
1: Is freaking
0: out. Oh, yeah. she said, When I got out of the water, she said if I'd have drowned, she'd have killed me. <laughs> so uh, oh my so God. that was part of it. Little did I know that I'd still be talking about that all, all these, these years, years later.
1: later. We had talked a little bit about Westchester County, and you were raised in Mount Kisco, <clears throat> New York. Yep. Can you paint us a little picture about what life was like in your house? Because I think, you know, our childhood really does create a foundation for where we end up. What was it like?
0: We moved from apartment to apartment. My mother and father were divorced when I was two. So I spent a lot of time in uh, only one day a week with my dad and my two brothers and my stepmom. So I was an apartment dweller, kind of confined and Always dreamed, of, I think it's why I like Westerns so much, always dreamed of the the great outdoors. This is the only time since I was 18 years old I have lived in anything that's like an apartment. But it's suspense manor, so this is well, different. Well, yeah, you know, with the Singleton's guitar-shaped Avenue, pool, Ron and come girl. on now. My grandfather was a volunteer fireman in Katona, so every June I got all dressed up in clown makeup and followed uh, Dugan's Brigade as clowns in this wonderful little New York hometown, very much like Bedford Falls from It's a Wonderful Life. My grandfather, Mike Dugan, worked at Clark Funeral Home, which was a pitching wedge from my grandmother's front door. And I spent a lot of time living with my grandmother as well. So I spent a lot of time at the funeral home with my grandfather.
1: What did you learn from that business?
0: If you're going to take a nap in a casket, stick a foot out.
1: Oh, did you really so that, do that? Did oh, you? yeah.
0: But you stick, stick one leg out, you know, a foot out so that people know you're you're, uh, you're napping and not Did uh, you do that as placed. a joke or did you? No, re- I did you... that because my grandfather did that.
1: Your grandfather took naps he in, in took coffins. He took naps in
0: the coffin, yeah.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the singing. When did you realize that you could sing? Did you recognize that early on in theater? Do you remember sitting oh, in your yeah. room well, and saying, theater. Wow, I think I can sing this song to the radio? How did it all happen for
0: you? When I listened to the radio and I listened to records with my uncle, who had cerebral palsy and listened to records all day, so music meant a lot to him, I was excited about how it was going to sound when that was me. Now, hear that sentence.
1: You it were envisioning it.
0: Yeah, I expected it again. But it wasn't a goal. It was like, oh, that's really cool. I can't wait to hear my records on a record player. Uh,
1: Who were the groups that were your favorites? What made you turn the radio up early on in your career?
0: Ted Nugent and the Amboy Dukes, Jersey Crowd, the Beatles, certainly. The Beatles were king of the world at that point. Creedence Clearwater Revival. Oh, yeah, CCR. John Fogerty, my gosh, it just doesn't get any better than John Fogerty. James Taylor, Cat Stevens, Jim Croce, first and foremost, actually, Jim Croce. Loved everything that he did. Very Mm. sad the day that, that he passed away.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the phenomenon that was the Dukes of Hazzard. Okay. And I wonder if you can just take us all into a day in the life of Bo Duke on set with a gigantic cultural phenomenon show like the Dukes of Hazzard.
0: Well, first of all, we were at Warner Brothers. So either we were on the lot or we were out at Valencia or Thousand Oaks or Placerita Canyon. We we kept getting chased out of places because they didn't like that we blocked traffic. So I would show up. Work would be at 630. I lived in North Hollywood during that time. I would get in whatever car I had at the time. Big car nut. So... Uh, First time I went over 100 miles an hour was on the way to work in a Porsche 911 SC.
1: Fun times.
0: 79, yep. 79 911 SC, and it was 1979. So I had a new car.
1: Woohoo. Pretty exciting.
0: Yep. And a Live brand in new large. Porsche was $28,000. It's 1979. a lot of money. I would go to work, and you'd get uh, somebody give you a breakfast sandwich, just like on Smoking the Bandit. Get into my clothes and into, into uh, hair and makeup, and which was kind of minimal. Although in those days, we were using monstrous, hot, huge lights. So it was before digital. Film is, is a little tougher to light, so you need to push in a whole lot more light in order to balance out the background. So it was hot. We're in California in July. Oh, God. And, you know, in front of all these, these lights. But it was great.
1: What about the chemistry? Tom Wopat, Catherine Bach.
0: Everybody was, uh, in those days, they cast. James Best. Everyone got along incredibly well, always, which was really great. The cast and the producers didn't always get along, but the cast always got along, and the producers always got along. But there was a little adversarial stuff going on there.
1: Sure, and I read a little bit about some of that. And, you know, I wanted to ask you, for starters, uh, because I've never had this opportunity, what does it feel like... To be on a lunchbox
0: <laughs> depends on the sandwich and how many people have asked <laughs> and you the that soup. question. It depends entirely on the soup. Split pea, not so great.
1: Uh, uh, you know, ch- millions of children were walking around carrying Bow Duke and Dukes of Hazard lunchboxes. Uh, it's
0: cool because I was a—I had a Superman lunchbox when I was a kid. So to be on a lunchbox was great. When I saw that we were on a lunchbox, is great. Now, forty something years later. It's a little odd to see your picture on an antique.
1: Like I said, you're looking good. It's don't little... you worry about a
0: thing. I had read a script way back when called Cowboy Heaven. And I read it when I was doing Dukes of Hazard. And in Cowboy Heaven, this guy dressed up like a cowboy is standing in front of a, a junk shop. And in the window is a lunchbox with his picture on it. And I wanted to play that back then. I don't know where, if the script even exists anymore, or I might just borrow that little piece of it because uh, now I know exactly what that's like.
1: 1969 Dodge Charger called the General Lee. Yep. I heard that you learned how to drive by driving that car on set. Is that true? No. Or is that just an no, urban no. 18, legend? It's an urban
0: legend. My first car was a 74 uh, Capri.
1: I know what a Capri speed. looked like.
0: Drove that, did little movies with it, had a Super 8 camera, made chase movies with that. Then I had a TR6, uh... So no, that was the biggest car I'd, I had driven because that was a 69 Charger, a, a beast. It is. It's a big car with no weight in the rear end, which is why it's so easy to slide around corners.
1: Casey Kasem says, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. Yes. How did you stay grounded when you were part of this incredible cultural phenomenon? <clears throat> was there somebody in your life who helped you stay grounded?
0: That's a great question. Thank uh, you. I think you stay grounded by having a goal. People would look at Dukes of Hazard and number one show in a three-network world as having reached your goal. I looked at it as a single step on the way to my goal. So I think that keeps you reaching for the stars. I think a lot of people who vanish after a big success were probably surprised by the success that they had. It came to them like, oh, you know, I was going to the store one day and all of a sudden I'm, you know, and I'm a, I'm a doctor on a television show. That would be hard to deal with. But I wanted to use and, and believe that Dukes of Hazard was a stepping stone so that I could write and direct and tell the stories I wanted to tell, both musically and cinematically. So I wrote and directed the last episode of Dukes. I'm the only one who wrote an episode of Dukes. Uh, everybody directed one. Tom directed several. He was great. But I wrote and directed the last one. And that's what I felt I was going to be doing from that point forward.
1: 1980. Height 1980. of your popularity. Dukes of Hazard is over with. You decide to pursue your singing and your recording career. You start out with a remake of the Elvis song. Now or Never. Yep. Talk about that.
0: It's Now or Never. It was on Scotty Brothers. Actually, 1981. That was... How would you describe Scotty Brothers? They did Leif Garrett. They they were great, but it was CBS and it was kind of uh, what we would call bubblegum at that point. Not something that really fit me. A couple of years into that, around 1984, Jimmy Bowen from Nashville at MCA got in touch with my representation and got me out of the Scotty Brothers deal. And I made in the interim, I made that record that's up there. It's called If You Believe. So that I made on my own. Remember, I'm a guy that wants to make my own music and my own movies and put my music in my movies, my stories, really. So that was a bridge album between CBS and MCA. So then I got to MCA, and this is when the music career really started, even though the It's Now or Never is still the top-charting Elvis cover of all time. Just
1: about to say that. Top, top cover for an Elvis song of all time.
0: I don't know that that means it's all that good. I think it might just mean that not many people dared cover an Elvis tune. It's now
1: about the first time you ever heard yourself on the radio
0: I was coming home from Dukes I believe it was it's now or never and uh, did you turn it it up my manager dear friend Mike Gersey was in front of me and there were no cell phones or anything so I cranked it up and I was again I was on the. we had moved to Thousand Oaks by this time so I was doing way too fast and got pulled over
1: you got pulled over got while pulled you were cranking the, your own song on the yeah, radio and, I,
0: and the guy walked up. But Dukes was king at that point, And I said, hey, I'm sorry, but can I just listen to the end of this? I've never heard myself on the radio. He said, oh, that's you. And I said, yep. So I didn't get a ticket. But I wasn't BSing my way out of it. That was me on the radio. So,
1: you know, I have a funny story to tell you. It's one of my favorite ones. I think you'll appreciate it. Livingston Taylor James's older brother uh-huh. had a pretty great career on his own, and still is a great singer and a, and a guitarist. And I was chatting with him. And he told me one of my favorite stories about hearing yourself on the radio for the first time. So I want to tell it to you. It's 1976. And he takes the train to New York City because he's appearing somewhere in New York. He has this signature big white guitar case. And he gets a cab and he gets the guitar case. It's gigantic. It's in the back seat with him. And the guy says to him in a New York accent, you play that thing? And so Livingston says, Yes, sir, I do. He goes, You got any songs on the radio? And Livingston says, Yes, the one that's playing right now. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you love
0: that? That's great. It's just Proofy. one
1: of the, you Proofy. know, exactly. The stars <laughs> just aligned. And he said it was just one of those things he'll never forget. I love it.
0: I love that.
1: I've been around enough to know, country girls, peak at number one, 85, you do something very rare, you sing a song that debuts at number one with a memory like you. Tell me the story behind that song.
0: John Gerard wrote that song. Johnny Jarvis is the piano player, John Gerard is the, uh, the songwriter. Blind, wonderful blind man has passed away, other end of music grow, that's where he lived. I had had the first two number one songs were that record up there with the jean jacket on top. And then I had another album, the one under it, that had two top 10 songs on it. But once you've had a number one song, a number two song is not a number one song. So they were top 10. Maybe one of them was top five. And then Jimmy Bowen and I decided to go back a little bit more toward what that one was. I'd listen to all the songs. You listen to hundreds, if not thousands of songs in order to pick 12. You cut 12 throw away two because you can only have ten in those days on an album, five on each side. So we were all done, had everything. I had my 12 songs, and this guy named Dirt, who was uh, the song finder of the planet, Don Lanier, worked with Jimmy Bowen, worked with me, worked with George Strait, worked with Reba, worked with John Anderson, worked with Hank Jr. I mean, on and on and on. This guy, Conway Twitty, knew where all the great songs were. And he said, I hate to do this, but I want to play you a song. You know, We've already culled them all down. We got, he said, no, but you have to hear this song. And if you like it, I think I can get it for you. He said, well, Steve Warner has it on hold. I said, well, then don't play it. I don't want to like something I can't sing, I can't have. He said, no, I think Steve will let it go because he had a song called Your Memory. And he said, I don't think he's going to want to do another song with the word memory in it. So I said, okay, let's play it. What's a memory like you? Do it in love like this. She thinks we're all through, but that's not the way it is. When I hold her in my arms, it's your lips, I still care. What's a memory like you doing in a love like this? What did you love about it's it? It's visual, and I think it's because John was blind. He was the most visual writer that I knew. He put you right there.
1: And it's so conversational, and you had mentioned when we first sat down, and we were talking about movies, you were talking about capturing what the audience can respond to. And as a singer, being able to sing a song that somebody else can identify with, and then they say, that's my song.
0: Oh, yeah. When somebody says, that's my song, or they play uh, the song at a wedding, it's a, a huge, huge compliment. I recorded another one of John's songs much later. Well, it sure feels like I'm dying as I watch you packing up your pretty things. I keep hoping that I'll wake up and find out this is all just some bad dream. I wish I could talk you out of your goodbye. And if I thought I stood half a chance, I'd try. But But I'll surrender to your wish and let you go.
1: Those are some beautiful. Oh lyrics. my God! Yeah, what's and when that song? Hear,
0: that's called "Hold Down the Moon." John Gerard, ah, nineteen ninety. Beautiful. Yeah.
1: Let's segue just a little bit okay. into this incredible television career of yours, Smallville. Doctor Quinn, medicine woman. I remember a couple of those episodes. That was pretty great. Well, I
0: did. Yeah, I did a year and a half of that. Yeah, I did the last year and a half when Sully uh, went missing there for a while. Sully
1: was so hot. Oh my God. Ooh, baby. Joe. Yeah, Joe was <laughs> a great guy. What do you like about TV series? What's the good part and what's the hard part?
0: The good part is that if you're on a good one, that you're welcome into people's lives. You're not just really something that's on you, like the Dukes. We are family members. Smallville, we are family members. The haves and have-nots, we're family members nobody wants to talk about because we're horrible people. But it's fun. Again, it's the illusion of continuity. It's the illusion of a world that actually exists. And you get to see how people respond to that. People love to love me as the bad guy. I feel probably like what Larry Hagman felt like when he did Dallas, which is great because people know I'm not really like that, but they come up and they're like, oh, you bad. You're a bad man. You bad. You're <laughs> a bad man. And I said, no, it's the women. The women make me that way. I'm a good guy. <laughs> And but, they go, Yeah, sure you are. You know But they love Dukes of Hazard as well. So we've got got people who are fifties watching Haves and Have Nots, black, white, yellow, blue, green, who were fifteen and five when they were watching Dukes of Hazard. And they're fine with, with, with both both of that. They're fine with Beau Duke being Jim Cryer and Jim Cryer being Beau Duke with a ten year stop off at Jonathan Kent in the middle.
1: I want to jump to Dancing with the Stars.
0: Leap, then.
1: For a reason, and that is because Tom Bergeron...
0: Love Tom. He's from, Europe, from was your...
1: Was a morning woods. man for my radio station, and I worked with Tom Bergeron in the I morning. Love Tom. Let me tell you something about Tom Bergeron, in terms of just being a great performer. As you know, in radio, it's happening right now, and then it's going out live, and if you screw up, you screw up, and it's gone. You got to just keep on moving. When you worked with Tom Bergeron, you could see the wheels turning. He had his headphones on, the song is playing. And when that song was over and he had his ensemble cast, he could make the best of every single person in that room. He was able to make everyone feel like they were so much a part of the magic of what was going on. Yep. What was it like to work with him on Dancing with was, the Stars? He was
0: the only one I actually talked to. I enjoyed talking with him a lot. And actually, I, I have uh, kept in touch with him a bit. We should take a picture We'll take and a send, it, and to send it to Tom. That's right. I loved it. It was great. It was a you wonderful have to be brave experience.
1: to be on there. Oh my God. Do but, you like to dance?
0: Uh, no. <laughs> no. I will if I have to. Um, and that's about the extent of it. But it was a great, great time.
1: You are the co founder of the Children's Miracle Network. I am. With Marie Osmond, who I love. What has that work meant to you?
0: I meet kids who are now adults. That were not supposed to live through the year, 30 years ago, who have their own kids. My sunglasses come from uh, John Packer, who uh, was 14 when I first met him. He's 39 right now. I think he might be 40 right now. Cystic fibrosis. One of, if not the oldest surviving cystic fibrosis patient. And he has a line of sunglasses. So I wear my John Packer sunglasses. Every year when we get together to celebrate those who help children's hospitals, we have a big time. We have a wonderful time. Last year we didn't do it. I wish we had. Just before the COVID thing hit, we lost our CEO in a bicycle accident. It was terrible. And John Locke is missed every moment of yeah. every day. He was the one that came up with a billion dollar a year fundraise. That's what our plan is. And we, uh, I think last year we were just shy of half a billion so we have done incredibly well. Thirty-nine years old now, eight plus billion raised, and we get bigger and better every year, even during this last year. So I love it. The biggest thing I love is I love running into the kids later.
1: I have heard a story that you were very good friends with Johnny Cash.
0: I live, there's John right there. I lived with Johnny Cash. Can he you tell us over that there story? Too, behind your head, he <laughs> surrounded us. I did a movie called Stagecoach. Which I'm looking, folks. You wonder what I'm doing. I'm looking for pictures. <laughs> we're
1: going to take pictures of this incredible room. So, anyway. Stagecoach
0: was uh, a remake of the John Wayne, John Ford movie, and uh, I played the stagecoach driver, and Johnny was the marshal, the U.S. marshal. So we were on the stagecoach together for the whole movie. He was a Dukes of Hazard fan and had already done uh, a song called "The General Lee" on the Dukes record, but I didn't know that. So when I went up to introduce myself to Johnny Cash, who I'd watched with my grandmother every, I think it was Saturday night, before I could introduce myself, he ran over and said, Hi, I'm John Cash. I love your show and your music. I love your music. At that point, Memory Like You had just come out. So I had the number one album in the country. Hi, I'm John Cash. Hi, I'm John. I'm John. My name's John. and I- He always introduced himself. Oh, my God. It was, it was great. So we hit it off, had a great time on the movie, and then I was coming back to do another record. And he said, where are you going to stay? And I said, I don't know. I'll rent a place or maybe the Spence here. And he said, don't, don't be silly. You know, we have a big house. Come live with us. Stay with us. So I did.
1: That's amazing. You know, we were interviewing Tony Brown, and oh, we God. were talking about star power. And he said that when Johnny Cash walks in the room, the temperature changes. Yep. What was your impression of him?
0: Same thing, but he was just my buddy. He was my friend. When I first saw him, it was like that. But then from then on, it was just, everything's going to be all right. There's my friend. Because during that time, he was my best friend, but I dare say that I was his best friend during that time. His record label let him go. He was touring a little bit. So I met him when he was disenchanted. Mm. The Highwaymen had happened, but... He was a little disenchanted with, with uh, how you can be treated here. When you have trouble getting in a building that you basically paid for, you know, we're here in the shadow of BMI. You know, it's, that's, that's a tough thing. I've been there, too. It's, it's, a, it's a tough spot.
1: And that's a follow-up, too, which is, I don't know exactly what the expression is, but the bigger you are or the higher you are, the further you fall. Right. When you do mm-hmm. fall, it hurts, and it's hard to get back up again. I know with my best friend, I have learned so much from her and she's learned so much from me. What did you learn from him?
0: To always just be you and don't hide your scars. Most important thing, don't hide your scars. Don't pretend that everything is great. If it's not, don't sit around and mope and whine and all that. If fame just happened to you, then that's one thing. But if you climbed up, then you won't fall down. Even if you do fall down, you can climb back up again. If you just catapulted to the top, that's a lofty perch you can you can just fall off of if you lose your balance, and then you don't know you don't know how you got there, so you sure as hell don't know how to get back. I've been up and down many times. I always consider myself on the way up. The best is yet Mindset, to come. Mindset, yeah, right? I expect great things. One of my goals was to get an Academy Award for. Directing, And now that the Academy Awards has turned into what it's turned into, I think I'd rather have a Dakota ring out of a Captain Crunch box or something. My God, they've lost all integrity, too. I guess I'm a little judgmental.
1: You know, I guess as (laughs) and as we come toward the end of the interview, one of my questions had to do with the fame piece in terms of when you're all the way up there. If you hang your hat on one thing, it probably doesn't work out. What you did was you had a hit TV show, followed by using your talent as a singer, followed by using your talent as an actor, and all the way to dancing with the stars and taking (laughs) risks on that. Has that been the secret to your success?
0: Having a goal, and uh, my grandfather used to do this thing where he'd have a can and a bag, and he'd reach down to pick up the bag, and he'd kick it with his foot. So he'd almost get it, and he'd kick it with his foot at the same time. It was a cute little trick. Like... Your parents probably kicked cans to school and then kicked the same can home. Well, I did some of that in in Mount Kisco. So this vision of of reaching down to pick up this prize and then kicking it further ahead yourself. It's not the wind. It's yourself. I I get a kick out of that. I get a kick out of doing that. And that's a picture I have. So as you approach your goal, expand upon it. Because I think a bad thing can be that if you reach if you reach your goal, now what?
1: Now what? Yeah, Where do you now go now from you there? Do. Final question for you: fill in the blank. The key to my success in country music has been
0: loving stories. Key to my success in anything is loving stories. I think because I spent so much time with my grandparents, I was a big Cary Grant fan, the big Paul Newman fan, big. Little Rascals fan. My memories of childhood are very actually black and white, except for the clown makeup in June. Everything else. In Dugan's Parade. Yeah, and the parade. And then going to the firehouse there in Katona and riding on the rides. And then the next day, going there with a buddy and, and walking, 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 looking for nickels and dimes and the occasional quarter. Uh, that might
1: have fallen on the ground.
0: Oh yeah, oh yeah, we did great. We get like two, three bucks that way. Of course, we also brought in bottles for the uh, deposit. But so <laughs> I did my that memory too, is know. all <laughs> like that. So those are great. Life stories. lessons too. Yeah. So because of that, when I write a script or when Alicia and I make a make a movie and there's some guy who's a nasty, terrible, mean prosecutor that would which we did, we did one called Inadmissible. But when he sees a penny on the ground, he picks it up, which rings true to anyone who's ever done that. So in that regard, the key to success in whatever business you're in is paying attention. And I pay attention. And Alicia pays attention.
1: I want to say thank you so much for being
2: our guest on Country Music Success Stories, John Schneider. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Hi, this is J.C. Don Valeris, your Music City Mentor. Can we just talk for one minute about how cool John Schneider is? The minute Candy and I stepped into the elevator on the way up to his condo, we knew it was going to be a really special afternoon. John's understanding of the entertainment industry goes so much deeper than the music business. This man has been famous for almost his entire life. I was curious about this, so I asked him, John, so many young people move to a city like Nashville with the hopes of becoming famous. You have so much experience with this. What do you say to somebody who might have that goal in mind?
0: This is an old person who's done it talking. So when you become famous, number one, expect it. But number two, make sure it's you that becomes famous and not someone the machine has created. If you wind up being famous for being someone you're not, it's like telling a lie. When you tell a lie, you've got to remember it. You've got to keep trying to tell it over and over again, and it'll change. But if you tell the truth, if you are who you are, if the town realizes or discovers that they can make money off of who you already are, then they'll leave you the hell alone and let you be famous. That's where Kid Rock comes from. Kid Rock is nobody but Bobby. (laughs) Johnny Cash was nobody but Johnny Cash. You must be so unique. You must be so you that Nashville throws away all of its little boxes it's got that it wants to put people in and has to build a new box to try to contain you.
2: What an honest answer. Without sounding too jaded about the ways of the music business, I have to agree with John. A city like Nashville can often try to tie you up in a pretty box and package you the way they believe you should be put out into the world. I've seen this happen firsthand with friends, and it's actually happened to me. A long time ago, I was offered a big record deal, but it wasn't in the direction that I saw my career going, and I knew it. So I was brave, and I turned it down. But on the other side of that, I've also seen artists so unique and true to themselves who have stuck with it and ended up having massive careers. So what do you do if you're hoping to gain the attention of a label? Do you conform to what they are wanting you to be or do you remain true to who you are and your art without compromise? My advice is somewhere in the middle of all that. I'm going to tell you what I have learned working for labels over the years and working with artists in the process of getting a record deal. My experience is this. Labels are always looking for the next big money maker. You heard me correctly. The music business is a business. Think of it like a restaurant. The look, the vibe, the food, the feeling of being there. Those are all selling points of a restaurant. And when a label wants to make money... They want their artists to have all the selling points too. The vibe, the sound, the look. Here are some other things that you will need to be if you're hoping to gain the attention of a record label. Number one, you have to be moldable. Being able to be shaped into something doesn't mean you can't remain true to who you are. But a label will often see a diamond in the rough and they'll want to polish it up a bit before sending it out into the world to be adored. My advice is to be as open as possible, while also staying true to who you really are. Like John said, if you become famous, make sure it's not in a way that causes you to have to live a lifelong lie. Number two, be memorable. This might be the most important one. Find out what is most memorable about you. Maybe it's your smile, your sense of humor, or maybe it's simply your talent. Whatever it is, make sure that you tap into that constantly. Impressions on people will be the thing that keeps bringing your name up in circles. And ultimately, it will be the thing that sticks in the minds of all of the decision makers. Be so unforgettable that they have to keep you around. Be able to network. I can't tell you how many times I have the networking conversation with people. I've seen artists killing themselves, performing, posting on social media, and doing all the things they need to, to be visible. But if they aren't networking in the right circles, it's all going to be for a whole lot of nothing. If and when you get lucky enough to get to Nashville and start networking, figure out quickly who you want to work with and then do everything in your power to make yourself known in those circles. Everything within reason. I'm not telling you to go out and stalk a label president or something, but do what you can to connect with the people you most want to have an opportunity with. It really is a town about who you know and who knows you. Another thing you have to do is treat people kindly. You've heard that saying, treat people nicely on the way up because you'll meet them again on the way down. Okay, that might be a little cheesy, but I've got to tell you, it's true. I've been in Nashville long enough to have seen the rise and fall of many people. And one thing I've learned through all of it is you never really know who in your circle is going to get that big opportunity that might lead to your own success. Be kind to everyone and remember that there is enough good to go around. If you have a reputation of being a good person, people will tell other people, and then you'll be known as being the kind of artist that everyone enjoys working with. It might sound simple, but goodness really does go a long way. Finally, remember what John said, make sure when your opportunity does come around, you are being authentic. Your star will shine longer if it's glowing from within. So show up as your most authentic self, be willing to take direction, and treat every single relationship like it's the most important one, because one day it just might be. More wisdom
1: you can use from
2: Music City
1: mentor, J.C. Don Valeris, inspired by the incredible country music success story of John Schneider. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. We've got more legends to meet. And stories to tell. Until next time, this is Candy O'Terry saying thank you so much for listening to Country Music Success Stories, where the stars welcome you into their homes and tell you how they made it in Nashville.